HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Breakthroughs, our Knowledge at HEC meeting with our school's top research academics. I'm your host, Daniel Brown. Today, after three years of regular exchanges with our professors, we've decided to show you the faces behind the names. And so soon you'll be able to enjoy a condensed version of this podcast on YouTube. And what better way to begin this audiovisual series than with Alberto Alemano? For the past 14 years, Alberto has been the Jean Monnet Professor of European Law and Policy at HEC Paris. He centered his research on how law and policy may be used to improve people's lives and how people should have a voice in it. As we're about to hear, Alberto focuses on designing and advocating reforms that shift power and reduce disparities in our society, notably in fields like health, the economy, law and politics. Alberto, you are prolific. You've written over 60 scientific articles and a dozen books. Hi, Alberto. It's great to have you for the first ever Film Breakthroughs podcast. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Alberto, you've been a keen observer of European affairs and the challenges that the EU has to represent the 450 million people living in that zone today. We're going to exchange on a wide array of fields that you've been covering in your academic career. That's going to include your study on future generations, a look at your research on how lobbies can become a force for promoting social change. There's also going to be uh, your proposals for a permanent European Citizens' Assembly. And finally, a look at the workshop that you conducted recently on lobbies by interest groups on the European courts. But I'd like to start, if I may, Alberto, with current affairs. On September the 13th, you published the Tribune in the French Le Monde Daily, where you reflect on the decision by the Open Society Foundation, OSPF, to leave Europe. Why did you feel strongly enough to write this op-ed about this network that was set up by the Hungarian millionaire George Soros? Mm. Well, I would say the reason why I, I decided to, to take a public stance on the decision of this philanthropy to depart from Europe is that this is an incredible opportunity to highlight the role that philanthropy plays in society. And the Open Society Foundation historically has played an incredible role in creating the conditions for European civil society to emerge in the first place, in particular after the fall of the wall in 1989, and in strengthening the work that many NGOs, non-profit organizations do on very difficult issues, ranging from racial justice all the way to social justice, um, countering abuse of the market by big technological companies. And the concern I wanted to express with my thoughts, with my opinion, was to basically say, who is going to fill in the gaps now that such a big foundation that has qualitatively and quantitatively supported so much European civil society is about to depart. And I also wanted to highlight the fact that any individual who is wealthy enough uh, to become a philanthropist and to give away is certainly free and remain free to reorient the giving uh, towards new causes, towards new stakeholders. However, he should become responsible for the many consequences deriving from such new decisions because in this case the level of dependence that was created between the foundation and civil society has been incredibly strong to the point that today many organizations might risk closing the doors and therefore nobody will necessarily uh, take over and, and pursue this, this important work. So this is 
the open question is a call for action for European philanthropy to come together and to come up with a plan B so that French, uh, German and many other philanthropic institutions in Europe can come together and see how they can strengthen the support for civil society. In a particular historical moment in which we see shrinking of the civic space, we see a lot of legislative frameworks that reduce the possibility to express, to gather, to check and hold accountable uh, public institutions. So it's a very unfortunate moment for, for such a decision to retreat from Europe. And there are some other foundations who are considering to do the same, so to follow the path by George Soros Foundation. Yeah, it is concerning because you say that it could create a vacuum filled by conservative forces from mainly Eastern Europe. Yeah, when we think about philanthropy, we always think about progressive causes. But in reality, philanthropy, which is an exercise of plutocratic power because it's about leveraging on wealth, you know, to basically replace choices in, in, in society, uh, can be exercised for any, any kind of co or causes. That basically means that today we see that behind the efforts in Poland, in many other European countries to restrict, for instance, the exercise of reproductive rights by the woman, there are religious uh, right-wing philanthropies, mainly coming from North America, that all of a sudden we find a much more fertile soil to inject investor funding in order to basically push for more conservative causes like we've been seeing with Viktor Orban in his demographic summit, uh, pushing for this kind of narrative according to which uh, unless we protect the family institution, uh, the LGBT movement and the rest are going to basically destroy our Judeo-Christian values in Europe. And, and, and this is possibly a slippery slope for our society because it kills pluralism and, and diversity. Well, this tribune is an example of how you regularly contribute to the public debate in the media. But now I'd like to turn to your research and, and begin with an extract of a report by the Euractive Media Network, which is specialized in EU affairs. What we're about to hear is a medley of young voices that goes back to 2018 in answer to the question, are we listening to the next generation? Well, obviously, young people are going to be living with the outcome of Brexit the longest, um, and that's young people all across Europe, not just in the UK. So it's incredibly important that young people's voices are central to the negotiations. Young people are also not consulted. They are not asked what they want, what is the future, not asked to actually take part in building the future. Brexit was a really, really interesting situation because it actually revealed really structural issues in the UK as to why young people often don't vote. They feel a bit left behind, so we basically tried to find out a little bit more about young people's reaction after the referendum. The Parliament has the final say on the agreements, and so the European Parliament must play its part and it must prioritise citizens' rights and also of young people, young citizens' rights. This report focused on the reaction of the youth to Brexit, but to be honest, it could be expanded to the relationship between all European youth and the institutions which are supposed to represent them. And that leads me to your latest research, Alberto Alemano. It's called Protecting the Future People's Future. And this is a paper about to be published by the European Journal of Risk Regulation. I think you can hear the concerns voiced by these generations, both present and future, in this report. Your research says that it's an institutional problem and that our EU structures don't have the tools to make their policies what you call future-proof. What do you mean by that? When you look at the 
voice that the youth uh, is trying to uh, play in our society, you, you soon realize that basically this voice is not heard. So they have a voice, but that voice is not channeled because if you look, for instance, at the electoral turnout, the segment of the population that is less political active, the least political active, is, is the youth. So in the recent elections in France, we had the majority of youth not exercising the vote. Uh, this is true for most European countries. It's true for most OECD countries. This is happening all across the world. And this is basically asking why this is happening. There's a certain disaffection vis-a-vis -vis the democratic system. So the responsiveness existing between the elected and the electorate remains very, very limited. But more structurally, and I think this is the point that emerged from my research, we can see that our political, economic, and social system are skewed towards the present generation. And I'm talking about those who are already middle-aged and who are more politically active and they are creating certainly more accountability vis-a-vis -vis the elected than, than the youth in the future generation. So in a way, our system is inherently biased against the future generations who are basically not given a voice. Of course, they don't exist, so we don't know who should speak on their behalf. And that, that's the reason why in our research we are focusing more and more on the youth as those actors who should actually be empowered to speak more. So there are reforms ideas I've been advocating for, like lowering, of course, the voting age in order to make it more, more attractive, but also be slightly more inventive. A possibility would be to give more votes to parents. So if you have three kids, you should vote three times, simply because the weight of your vote and the possibility for those kids to be affected by, by the policy decision is greater. But we can become much more sophisticated and imagine that as long as you get older in life, uh, the weight of your vote is going to be reduced, uh, right? So if you are young, your, the, your weight, the, the weight of your vote should be greater. And I think this would be a very corrective measure to ensure that even if the young tend to vote less, uh, the political incentives for the political class would remain high in making sure that there is such a, a representation. And, and now, all of a sudden, we see some political, I would say, interest towards uh, future generation. We see a lot of institutions uh, emerging around the world. Uh, there is one in Wales, uh, the Commissioner for Future Generation. We see parliamentary committees tasked to think about the future generation. And what these institutions, one will also be coming from the UN system in the uh, uh, UN Future Summit uh, next year, is basically to embed a long-term thinking in our policy making. So if you think about our political system, our economic system, they tend to be very short-termist. You think about the political cycle. We vote every five years. We think about the economics system driven by finance. They are all very much into the short-term because they, that's where the gains are. That's the bandwidth. Is. So both at the individual and collective level, we tend to build systems that are not integrating future generation interests simply because nobody has incentives to, to, to make it happen. Hence the emergence of these institutions. So there's a lot of experimentation and I've been designing some ideas uh, that aim at potentially integrating and embedding uh, those interests in our political economic assistance through new institutions, new type of institution. We call them institutions for the future. Uh, and perhaps in the next few years, we're going to be seeing a European commissioner for the future. We're going to be seeing you know, a European ombudsman for the future, so a sort of 
uh, representative of those interests uh, that will remind elected conventional politicians about the importance to project themselves towards the 50 years, 100 years, 30, 300 years from now and to somehow unleash their democratic imagination on how to hold accountable uh, present generation vis-a-vis -vis the long term. And obviously the climate is the elephant in the room, but the climate should not mo monopolize our conversation about the future. There are so many other issues ranging from social housing all the way to taxation, all the way to any form of inequities existing across races that are so entrenched in our society, but they could be unlocked if we only broaden up our horizon. So you've given me a few concrete ideas here, but I was wondering if you can give me more examples in terms of your aim to help put future generations on the map of EU policymaking. You suggest either changing or improving these traditional institutions that seem to have neglected this long-term vision that you just described. Yeah, our institutions are, are very, very old um, and they struggle to, to change. There's a lot of path dependency. That's the way we've been doing this, so why should we change? Um, there is little accountability in, in making this change happen. So one might wonder what could actually drive such change. And I think at the European level, we clearly see a major generational gap, right, between those who are calling the shots, taking decisions, running our economic and political and social system in a new generation that we see here at Ashose in our new recruit, new students coming from all over uh, that really pursue and give value to different things in, in life. So the, their expectations are so different than the one uh, that represent the imagination of the current uh, elites uh, that are basically defining their, their lifetime opportunities. And I think that's where we can expect changes. But this is a critical space. If you take climate, right? Climate is an area where all of a sudden governments through the Paris Agreement took all these pledges. And now we are almost 10 years away. We're going to do the first take stock exercise. And it turns out that all these pledges remain largely dead leather. There are transformation, very incremental happening. But the legitimacy and the acceptance of the youth movement that made and created such awareness is dropping dramatically. So approximately 60% of Europeans were supporting the youth movement. They believed that we had to transition. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, possibly largely as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the fact that these had basically increased prices and changed uh, the economic conditions for many millions in, in Europe, all of a sudden the public support for those policy interventions in the climate youth movement has dropped to 30%. So mm -hmm. only in two years' time we see this happening of, of, of the support for a movement that was perceived, led by Greta, with, with a lot of say, Greta legitimacy, Thunberg. Greta Thunberg as a leader, and all of a sudden this is questioned. And we see that politically this will be the major dividing line, right? Whether we should remain progressive in the way in which we transform our political, economic, and social system, or whether we should rather be... Uh, more conservative in trying to slow down, as many political leaders are calling for, like pushing the pause button on the Green New Deal, uh, which in principle should have been our new polar star, giving raison d'etre for Europe to stay together, to cooperate, to enter into this ecological transition that not only has to happen, but it has to happen in a very fair and just way. And that's exactly the point. I mean, we all remember in this country the Yellow Vest Movement, whose major raison d'etre was exactly to push back against policies that were 
allocating in a very unfair way the cost of the ecological transition. But I don't think we have made major progress on, on this issue. So the yellow vest movement can happen in different forms again as a result of this insatisfaction about the inability of governments to respond to the citizens' demand that today remains a bit between a, a hard rock and a... And, and, um, yeah, between a rock and a hard place. Staying with this resistance by traditional institutions, uh, which appears to be quite deep-seated, Alberto, how are people going to respond to your paper? After all, you're actually asking for a shift in power, which they might see as very provocative. For example, you suggested less power to the older generations or more votes to families that have a lot of children and so on. As I said earlier, you're about to publish this paper called Protecting the Future People's Future in a major academic journal. So how do you think people will respond to, to these suggestions? Yeah, I would say that there is clearly a generational divide of the issue, right? When you talk to, to our students, but also when you talk to uh, youngsters who don't who are not privileged enough to, to do into higher education and they are doing and playing different roles in life, they are certainly sensitive to this idea that their life chances are significant, uh, but their quality of life uh, remains very precarious uh, because we don't see uh, major improvement in the overall welfare state. And therefore, they are very keen to espouse uh, this long-term perspective that is currently lacking today. Uh, but of course, those individuals are exactly those who have less power in society. They are those who show up less in the elections, so they are less vocal, they are less organized, and they are not necessarily running companies or running uh, institutions, in particular in Europe, where there's a certain gerontocracy, right? You need to have a certain age in order to be elected or in order to set up a company and to be successful and to get the conditions, besides a few exceptions, unfortunately. So we, we, we see resistance and only, I think, the political process and the new social norms that are emerging in society will be able to unblock this, this, this situation. So I remain optimistic because we, we feel and we sense a lot of demand for, for change, but at the same time, uh, an inability of the political system alone or the market system alone to deliver on those promises. And that's the source of frustration um, that I think are, are having a paralyzing effect um, both on on the political side, but also on the more societal one. So are we going to see more protest? Are we going to see more mobilization um, as a result of this insuccess or inability of the political system to deliver? I think is a legitimate question. Um, you know, when you think about eco-terrorism, meaning these young kids moving from pacific protest to uh, attacking uh, violently, you know, CEOs running fossil fuel companies or politicians who are actually delaying, uh, once again, uh, climate action. These scenarios are not totally far-fetched because there's growing frustration in that society. And you can see, and we witness a radicalization in the repertoire of tools mobilized by these protest movements that indicate frustration. And where this will go, I think, is a legitimate question to be asked in, in 2023, 2024. Thousands on the streets of London the second of four days of climate protests. The message, familiar, but this time the tactics have shifted. It's less about disrupting the public and more about asking them to join in. For campaigners like Chris Packham, an important new direction. I mean, 
no one here is being arrested. No one's sticking themselves to anything. No one's throwing any soup. I hope they haven't got any soup with them, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, we're asking people to step up at this time, to move one rung up of their comfort zone into activism. Those attending the protests from groups like Extinction Rebellion and others agree previous methods may have been counterproductive. Extinction Rebellion hears a lot. We really support your aims, but we're not sure about the means. And we've listened to that and we've decided that we need to change the way we do things so that everybody can be part of this movement. Disruption causes um, resistance and we need to unfreeze the resistance and get people to think rather than just argue. There was. Uh, an air of nervousness uh, due to their previous tactics yeah. um, that have been a bit You didn't more... want to get arrested, for example. No, and, and you know, you want to be safe and feel that the people that you're bringing with you are safe. Simmering under the cordial atmosphere here is a deep fear of the future and growing contempt for politicians. Their own internal reports are showing they're woefully off track. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely not going to meet those targets. In fact, we're heading in the opposite direction. So, uh, yeah, don't believe it at all. Leaders need to lead, and they're lying about the types of actions that they can take to mitigate climate change. They're not doing enough. They're not stopping fossil fuels, and that's what we need to do. That seems unlikely. Ministers are expanding oil and gas drilling rather than shutting it down, putting them even further at odds with a movement that is increasingly determined to be heard. Hannah Thomas-Peter, Sky News in Westminster. Alberto, let's move on a little bit. I think that our listeners can see that your research does often show that the king is naked when that's, there's a healthy frankness in your approach. And we see this characteristic in much of your own work as a researcher and academic down the years. I'd like, for example, to invite you to listen to your own words back in 2016. That's when you talked to participants in a crowdsourcing week about ways to renew democracy through citizen engagement and lobbyists. We say to publish or to perish in our profession. And... Overall, I've been ticking the boxes. I'm a pretty good teacher and a pretty good researcher, published papers, so I should be quite satisfied. But I start wondering whether the impact I was having on students and on the world was enough to be happy with my own life. Let's have a look at my papers, my research, the other half of my professional life. The situation there is also very gloomy. In average, an article written by me is read by 10 people. And the people who cite that article, probably they haven't read it. So I don't feel very comfortable with my professional life because I know I'm pretty good. I have talent to do things, but I cannot really channel that particular talent in real life. I call it system failure. And the very provocative question I have for you is whether I'm the only one here to feel this, to feel this disconnect between the talent I have and the need of society out there. And the big question is, how can we feel it? Of course, how can we feel it? So regardless of whether you work for a corporations as a professional in marketing, finance, management, or you work for a public administration in a government, in an international organization, you're pretty likely to feel like me, to feel this gap 
to feel that we keep accumulating knowledge and expertise and we're very good in our professional life, but we struggle in transferring this talent into the real world. Well, Alberto, I think we do share the same objectives in breakthroughs, that of wanting to fill this gap, to bring the academic messages to a wider public. First of all, though, your reaction to this clip seven years ago? Well, um, I think that diagnosis is, is still holds true today. I mean, I don't think there are many more people reading my academic papers or those papers who are written here at Ashose or any anywhere else. What I mean is that the gap existing between academic research and reality remains very significant, and we really struggle to bridge uh, this, this, this gap to, to today. And, and we are trying hard. We, we are doing things like translating our research as we are doing today for a broader public. We are trying to uh, beautify our engagement with, with society. We are trying to make our uh, form of contribution going beyond the ivory tower. But at the same time, you know, this behavior is not necessarily what is expected from academics. We are not trained to talk to journalists. We are still not trained to translate our research uh, to policymakers. So we are a bit there in this kind of ambivalent situation in which we are expected to do a bit more than writing papers, but the incentive system still reflects uh, this idea. So at the end of the day we are still, I think, underutilized and not necessarily channeling this um, potential uh, to transform society through knowledge in, in the way in which we, we witness. But a major difference between 2016 and now is ChatGPT, is, you know, is generative AI, is, is the fact that there are tools today that are able to actually do in a very effective way things that... Uh, might actually help to bridge that gap, but they also have exclusionary effect um, because they might get rid of professions. Um, and I think this is a bit the dilemma we face. So this is the major difference probably for between 2016 and, and 2024. Well, anyway, this honesty about not being completely comfortable with even your own position has, I think, galvanized much of your research and actions. And that brings me to a second paper we're wanting to talk to you about, uh, also soon to be published. It's called The Lobbying for Good Movement, and it's coming out soon in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. In this study, you've turned to a positive form of lobbying. You examine a new movement, which shows that lobbying is an essential part of social change. But before we dive into it, Alberto, please do tell us uh, how you define this word lobbying in the EU context. I mean, there's corporate lobbying, citizen lobbying, right? Well, lobbying... Uh is nothing else but to participate, participate in society. So it's about reminding our political representatives who we are, we are there, we have preferences, and that's exactly what we should do. So, so that's citizen lobbying. Yeah. Well, everybody can do it. Uh, it can be corporations, it can be citizens. Everybody is entitled to petition his government and to remind uh, that we are here, we are waiting for their actions. We often forget about this, but you know, we hold sovereignty. We just delegate them on a temporary basis to our representatives. So lobbying is about that. Uh, obviously, the word, the semantics are really heavy. They, they carry a very negative connotation, and this uh, way of participating has been hijacked by the usual suspects, certain special interests that are very active in the space existing in between elections to gather the attention of the policymakers, but nobody prevents, uh, nothing prevents us, academics uh, uh, or, or, or journalists uh, or 
physicians uh, or any type of uh, worker and individual to actually engage with political leaders, but that's exactly what we don't do. So you clearly see the link existing between my frustration in witnessing the gap between uh, the academic environment and society and the possibility that might be open by embracing academic lobbying or citizen lobbying or any form of participation that enable uh, the individual and collective level to basically connect with power systems, power dynamics that are today missing uh, what I call uh, the missing stakeholders. I mean, those individuals who are mostly affected by those decisions, but they don't have a say. Uh, despite the fact they might be epistemically better placed than political leaders, because we know that in average society is probably more educated today than our elected representatives. So how can we get out of this situation in which we are basically wasting human capital, talents. And this is uh, the aim of uh, this paper. Daniel had a long genesis. It's, it's a paper I started working on probably five years ago when I had an intuition that something in society, in the market, in the political system was changing. So I went into, I ran these ethnographic studies, identifying players, actors, who had exactly the same vision I've been sharing with you now. So saying... Well, we need to demystify and to democratize lobbying as a form of participation. And when you look at these actors, they, you have the usual nonprofits, you have civic tech platforms and apps enabling neighbors to signal to the mayors that there's an issue in the pothole, while at the same time denouncing uh, racial discrimination fact, while at the same time uh, drawing the attention about inequalities in the workforce, and, and simply creating, commodifying this uh, link existing between individual lives and, and the political, economic, and social systems. But they are not only nonprofits. Uh, you also have philanthropies, foundations that are behind the emergence of this movement. But then you also have corporations, companies that are today under unprecedented public scrutiny. They can no longer use lobbying just to promote the self-interest, to promote their bottom line. They need to take care of their environmental footprint, they need to take care of their social footprint, but also their political footprint. So what is left behind by their engagement with the political process? And all these actors, they just have one thing in common. They really think that we can flip the meaning of lobbying by empowering many more people, many more actors, by being, first of all, more transparent in the way in which they engage with the political leaders, to be more demanding in relation to what we expect from the political leaders when responding to us, and finally, democratize, giving access, equalizing access to power so that everybody can be joining the movement. So now the final line of the piece is now the time has come to lobby for good lobbying, right? So we need to mobilize the same repertoire of tools that we've been used to promote special interests in order to uh, advance a positive vision in society in which each of us, based on his or her talent, is able to get into the system and have a say and shape it, rather than just being um, a consumer as opposed to being a citizen, just being, you know, somebody who goes to the movies as opposed to being one of the characters of the movie. So it's a, it's a call for action. But before that conclusion, how did you go from this intuition five years ago to this analysis uh, that you brought? Uh, I mean, what were the exact mechanics of your research? Well, the mechanics of the research are always non-linear, meaning they are made of, of encounters, of these creatures, uh, which is a very lonely behavior, conferences organized, participation to events, workshops, 
uh, but also a lot of applied research. And I think that's something I've been trying to do with the support of HEC Foundation. I had the chance to test some ideas. On they who? were crafted and designed on a variety of actors, on NGOs, nonprofits, um, while also collaborating with some enlightened progressive companies that they believe and feel uncomfortable for having too much power in, in the system and therefore exercising self-restraint, uh, which sounds a very naive idea, thinking that a company is going to exercise self-restraint on exercising its full power, but is happening. And uh, what I realized in one component of this research that I cover in the article, I realized that the major and most promising actor in triggering this change is represented by the investor side. So today, investors allocating capitals are those calling the shots, are all those deciding whether the systems should change or not and to what extent, because by allocating capitals towards one industry versus another, walking out, walking away from fossil fuel towards renewables, or uh, checking whether the companies they invest into they have a diversity policy which is in line with, with the expectation of society, might actually be able to shape from the top the entire societal system. And this is the, the final um, applied research work, which is called the Good Lobby Tracker, so it's a, it's, a, it's a system, it's a navigator that allow investors, companies, civil society organizations, think tanks, everyone to position themselves in relation to power structure and self-assess their own governance and activity in, in those spaces. In other words, the tracker allow them to diagnose how good they are in terms of best practices out there in engaging and in exercising their political power. So we have been scrutinizing over 30 initiatives ranging from Moody's, ESG providers, to Refinitiv, to OECD standards, MCSI, World Benchmark Alliance, B-Labs, all initiatives that are somehow trying to push uh, and move the needle in that space by creating new norms of reporting for companies that now are becoming mandatory. So the theory of change there is that if this the good lobby movement will emerge, will be basically codified by new regulatory regime that are, for instance, asking companies to report, to disclose more, not only about their emission standards, scope one, scope two, scope three, like is happening in Europe, now in California, in many other jurisdictions, but also to disclose about their track record when it comes to their supply chain. Do they buy products or materials in a supply chain where fair wages were not paid, where human rights, where child labor was involved? And now we're moving the next level after the environmental and the social we're moving to the to the political so we ask also their companies more and more to disclose whether they take a stance do they take a stance on the russian invasion of ukraine are they still operating in russia and we felt over the last few months an incredibly unprecedented public pressure yeah. on those companies to walk out of russia because not taking a stance meant implicitly to take a stance and to be somehow an accomplice to, to the Putin regime, which is killing individuals not only in Ukraine, but in many other parts of his own territory, and which is leading the entire geopolitical uh, balance to, to, to change. So you see that there are many other implications that transcend our region. HEC Breakthroughs, a knowledge at HEC podcast. Alberto Alemano, let's turn to this final paper that we'd like to talk to you about. This time, it goes back three years since its publication. It's called Citizen Power Europe, the Making of a European Citizens' Assembly, a permanent one, you add, in the paper. 
in your study, you admit your sympathies for a citizen-centric ecosystem, or in plural, ecosystems, as opposed to this state-driven initiative like the one that we saw orchestrated by the United States at the Summit for Democracy in 2021. But could you first sum up what advantages there are with the former, which you've mapped out in this 20-page article? By the way, Francophiles following us can read, uh, read it in the Revue Européenne du Droit, or the European Law Review. Yeah, our, our political institutions are basically dating back to the, the 19th century, but we are in the 21st century. So it's pretty clear that we are not, they are not fit for purpose today, and, and there's a, a clear set of signs suggesting um, the erosion in the ability and resilience of our institutions to be responsive to citizens' demand. And we see this every single day. And uh, the urgent need to embrace democratic experimentation, uh, to embrace political innovations, and we try to complement representative mechanisms, meaning electoral processes, with other forms uh, of... um, feedback loop being built between the electorate and the elected representatives. And I call this participatory democracy. We can call it deliberative democracy, which is a subtype of participation, which basically consists in going back to sortition, uh, so randomly selected systems that allow you to basically have a group, uh, which we can call a mini public. That's how we call it in the literature, uh, something that France has been experimenting with the Grand Debat, with the Convention uh, Citoyenne, Convention Climat, that basically create a sort of soundboard uh, for the political process to get a sense of what society wants to expect on that particular issue. And we had so many successful precedents in Ireland uh, where the political class was absolutely enabled to take a stance on major societal issues like same-sex marriage or right of abortion. So the system was blocked. The political system was enabled to take a stance on this. So the genius idea at the time would say, let's convene these citizens' assemblies. Let's see what citizens want. And, and this opened up a space of deliberation and that empowered those individuals, but not only those who were randomly selected, so they were there basically by chance, but also the entire community, the entire society, because the media, they start assessing the pros and cons of every single option. How hypocritical it was to tolerate abortion being happening across the channels for Irish women but not being tolerated there. Why, why, how could you justify this, right? So the conversation also took into account the religious concern uh, that were also well-funded from that perspective and put everything on the table in a very clear way. And that's exactly what political leaders should do, but they never do. They don't deliberate. They belong, they belong to tribes. But, but why? We have an example of the logjam being resolved thanks to these citizen assemblies in the Republic of Ireland. It's a win-win situation. So why? Because basically these, the citizens per se, they won't decide. So they're not replacing the representatives. In the case of Ireland, there was a referendum. Uh, that was so the question was put to the citizens, but the citizens went through that deliberative process. They show up and there were positive votes. They could have been negative and it would have been equal, the, the success story, because there would have been at least a decision, clear, based on facts and deliberation instead of just biases. The question now and the challenge and part of my work uh, in that paper I wrote with Calypso Nicolaidis from Oxford and the School of Transnational Governance at UI is how can we institutionalize those citizens' panels? So we have a lot of experiences at the local level, at the national level, but we don't have many experiences that became permanent, 
they became stable. And I wrote a paper uh, which is related to that, that is really trying to create this permanent citizen assembly. So what should we do in Europe? And in a nutshell, the idea, without complexifying too much, is to have a permanent group of citizens, uh, let's say 1,000, coming from all over Europe, who on a regular basis check what citizens are asking with petitions, complaints, letters, and they clearly come up with a ranking of issues. It might be how to regulate the metaverse, how to tackle inflation, how to improve access to social housing, and they rank them. And then they propose this to the political level. And the political level said, these are the issues where we need advice. We need the soundboard. And, and they would convene those on an ad hoc basis, but thanks to this, what I call the Citizens, uh, the citizens uh, Council, so we would have this Citizens Council basically defining the political agenda that would be co-created during the political electoral space. So we vote every five years, but in the space in between elections, we would have yet another entry point to set the agenda by the citizens, with the citizens, and with direct contribution. So this is the intuition of deliberate assemblies and having them as a complement, not as a substitute of our representative system. So win-win, as you said correctly, in my view. Thank you, everyone, for participating in the summit for democracy and for renewing our dedication to the shared values that are the root of our national and international strength. And the final message I want to impart as we close out this summit for democracy is that we know how hard the work is that's going to be ahead of us. But we also know we are up to the challenge because I've said before, and as this gathering has demonstrated, the democratic world is everywhere. Autocracies can never extinguish the ember of liberty that burns in the hearts of people around the world in every portion of the world. It knows no borders. It speaks every language. It lives in anti-corruption. U.S. leader Joe Biden at the Summit for Democracy a couple of years ago, I mentioned it earlier on. Alberto, you also pointed out uh, this sort of face-off between Europe and the U.S. because this is a European initiative and it is opposed to what Biden put forward in this controversial summit. His point of view seems to dominate the media space, however. Is that one of the problems? No doubt. The nation state is still the most relevant actor in our political space. Is is the nation state that define our life chances, that define the policies that they... But is the nation state capable alone uh, to tackle major cross-border issues ranging from you know, climate transformation, planetary uh, transformation that are currently happening today, and major issues in a very globalized world, but also a world that is facing so many crises and bumps nowadays. So what we tried to highlight in, in this piece was the contrast, the transatlantic contrast of... By President Biden pushing for this uh, summit of democracy to which uh, he had to invite also non-democratic regimes, right, because of political compromises, with the vivacity and imagination of Europeans during COVID time to say, well, we are not going to follow the usual script here. We are going to unleash our imagination and we're going to take the risk to give voice to citizens for real. And that's what they did. And as somebody who has been part of this process, I was the legal advisor of the European Commissioner in uh, the second panel on democracy, I sat with the citizens. And those citizens were real. They were not only HEC students speaking English fluently. They were people who couldn't speak any language but theirs, their own. So they were not able to speak one another. 
because they had no common language, but they could have been, you know, cousins, aunts, the people we meet every day, who actually felt suddenly empowered by an exercise that was asking them, what do you expect from Europe? Why Europe and not the nation state or your city should take those decisions? And all of a sudden, there was a lot of buy-in by those individuals, thanks to automatic translations. They were able to to talk and to build this kind of freshness that today is missing. So they, they have been exposed, most of them, for the first time to diversity. And they often ask people around, uh, when I ask Atash to say to our university, to our students, how many uh, Europeans live in a different country than the country in which born? In other words, how much mobility exists in Europe? They say 20, 30 percent, which is far from the truth, right? Only 3 percent of European citizens are. But here we have a misperception, right? That everybody is living uh, mobile lives. But then when I ask the other question, which is much more meaningful, is how many Europeans are on a yearly basis exposed to another country because they go there on holiday, because they might work, because they might have family. Well, the number goes, it goes well beyond 50%. So you see that the European experience of life is, is there, is in full existence. So we, we just need to capture, to, to name it, and to, to make sure that it translates into democratic processes that allow citizens to feel part of, of a broader community. And being European does not mean not to be French. You can be French, a European, and also somebody who was born in, in Aix-en-Provence um, or, um, or in Jouy josas Finally, Alberto, let's turn to the exchanges that you've organized recently with fellow researchers here on the HEC campus. It was in mid-September that you and HEC strategy professor Eli Sung invited the academics from around the world to discuss whether and how interest groups lobby the courts. Uh, the conference featured a multidisciplinary approach with, with a focus on researchers who are exploring lobbying regulation in law and non-market strategy. Uh, There were also representatives from interest groups in political science. Uh, Why was this aspect so important to discuss between such a diversity of researchers here? Right, I think access to power is is basically the dominant theme in in my research, as you can see. And Ili Sang at the strategy department and myself, we, we had this serendipitous encounter a few years ago, and we both realized that we care about focusing something that has been historically neglected, whether and how interest groups, citizens, try to influence not only the parliament, not only the government, but also courts. Uh, so judges are also object of, of lobbying, of influence, of participation. And this raises a, a very difficult political uh, theory question, whether courts should become participatory, should be open to external input, because they have been designed to be uh, insulated from outside scrutiny. You need to become a party to a case in order to engage with with a court. But obviously, uh, once again, we see that historically the usual suspects, special interests, have been hijacking access to courts by basically enjoying the fact that this access is subordinate to the satisfaction of a lot of epistemic complexity. You need a good lawyer, you need to tick a lot of boxes, and this is not something that everybody in society can afford. So all of a sudden, we came to the realization, in her case, in her PhD, uh, in my case, in my subsequent um, articles over the last years, and also my experience, I worked in a court as a referendum, as a clerk for, for five years, that courts might have become major a major locus for power influence that has major repercussions not only on the outcome of that case, of that litigation, but also on policy making. 
um, to the point that if you look at the other side of the Atlantic, there are major cases, you think about reproductive rights, uh, that are decided by the courts, they're not decided by the legislature, and which are the result of approximately 30 years legal strategy, which does not simply consist in pushing the courts to take a stance on the 14th Amendment, but rather to create an entire legal doctrine that entail the training, the publication of academic articles that in a very subtle way shape the whole ideational and informational space for judges to grow in. In other words, this has been a long-term investment mm -hmm. made by a particular group of people, this time not progressive but very conservative, socially conservative, who actually won that battle. And this is happening not only in the US. In our workshop we had the chance to have people from over 10 countries and they were all studying, researching, reporting how this is happening in very subtle way. They suggest that the repertoire of tools available to interest group vis-a-vis -vis courts might be even more sophisticated and even more inaccessible. And therefore, this is producing huge socioeconomic implications than the one already operationalized vis-a-vis -vis the legislature. In other words, this is very, very nasty lobbying happening, completely hidden. Uh, to the point that this phenomenon is not even a knowledge. So we wanted to break the taboo and we got a lot of support and encouragement by many scholars who actually responded uh, to our call for papers and actually show up here at Ashosane. They spent two days with us discussing all the intricacies around how to conceptualize this concept of judicial lobbying and, and identifying the, the different forms, manifestations, expressions that are emerging today, but they remain under uh, the radar. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have in today's breakthroughs, although we have gone way over the time usually allocated to this podcast. So there only remains time for me to say thank you, Alberto Alomano, for this breakthroughs exchange, which I hope will be the first of many to come. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Well, that's it for this month's Breakthroughs podcast. To get insights into HEC's other research, why not subscribe to our monthly Knowledge at HEC newsletter? Oh, and if you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop them off at browned, in one word, at hec.fr. That's browned at hec.fr. My thanks for this program to Dana Mezher and Céline Bonnet-Lacquitaine of the Communications Department. Until next time, goodbye.